Hello and welcome to Two Friends Talk History, a podcast where two friends have a coffee and talk about history. My name is Sophia and I'm a public historian fascinated by the exploration of history from researchers, practitioners, academics, and more. In each episode, I invite a guest to discuss an aspect of history that they are involved with and why it matters in the section, So What? I'm so glad you're here joining me on this journey. As a way of thanking members for their support by joining us on Patreon, I offer members-only content, including extras like downloadable episode art, maps, and contextual images. Members have access to 100-word histories, downloadable learning materials, shout-outs, and more, all for the cost of a pint or a flat white a month. Sign up today at patreon.com slash archaeoartist. Your support keeps this rickety wagon of dreams going. I would like to thank our new patron, Slucky, this week. Thanks for your support, girl. All right, on with the show. I am absolutely thrilled to welcome my travel buddy, fellow ancient goddess enthusiast, and dear friend, Brianna King, as my first guest to kick off Series 2 of Two Friends Talk History. Brianna is originally from Boston, where she completed a BA in Classics at Stonehill College. While attending Stonehill, Brianna got a taste of living in the United Kingdom during a term of study at Oxford. Having developed a love of this incredible weather, Brianna managed to come back, and this time to the North, to complete a Master's in Classics at University of Edinburgh. Hot off the press, Brianna has just received her PhD in Classics and Ancient History at the University of St. Andrews and is now Dr. King to everyone, including her parents. We have been bantering for years about ancient history on so many trips together for research-focused fieldwork, excavations, and more. And now I am so excited to have a cup of tea and chat about sex in the ancient world with Dr. Brianna King. Welcome. Thank you for that lovely introduction, travel buddy. (laughs) (laughs) I'm very excited to be here. Excellent. Well, yeah, we've spent at least four or more years doing trips to the, you know, historic sites of the Mediterranean and starting with our, our delightful trip to Rome in 2014. Yeah, it's 2014. Yeah. Yeah. It's been seven years. I know. <laughs> and that always will, will stick in my mind as two A-type planners jamming as much as one could conceivably jam into that trip. And not staying with the group at all. Yeah. I mean, we've definitely had... You know, we, we did a research trip to Greece recently, looking at archaeological sites and museums and, I mean, among other places. So we've seen a lot of the ancient world together. So throughout all of our travels, and there have been so many fascinating intersections between our different areas of research. And I have to admit, I have vocally always been a pretty big fangirl about your PhD and your, like, your topic. <laughs> It's like you're not just an expert on sex and sexuality and antiquity. You're also a specialist in the study of the cult of Aphrodite and her impact on the Mediterranean. You have your bona fides when it comes to like understanding the the sexier side of the ancient world. Yeah, definitely. Um, my research has definitely crossed into several different topics. Um, and I think my favorite part of it was it's, you know, my PhD heavily focused on the cult of Aphrodite, but it was also looking at her relationship with ancient sexualities. And there's a whole corpus of evidence to look at that I I barely touched that I'd really like to go back into. My my PhD focused on Greece and I'd love to see Roman Venus and how that affected Roman sexualities. I know enough to get by, but I'd like to really delve deep into it at some point. Awesome. Well, I have a image catalog that will be at your disposal when that time is. Thank you. (laughs) I should probably start this with a bit of a trigger warning that this episode is going to contain themes of sex, sexuality, violence, 
all the good stuff. You know, the pieces of art that we might reference and talk about are going to be uh, available for people to follow along with the Instagram account to friends talk history. So that can help you kind of visualize a little bit better what specifically we're saying. And for people on Patreon, there will be even more materials available and uncensored, obviously, because um, the internet has rules and I must abide by them. <laughs> and some of these are like delightfully explicit. I think with that disclaimer done, let's get to it. Uh, on my first trip to Europe back in 2001 with my mom and sister, it was my first time out of Canada and my first ever access to the ancient world in, in like a real tangible sense. In Vancouver, there was no museum displays that had stuff like the Boston Museum of Fine Arts that had like a classics collection or anything. So everything that I was seeing was just incredibly stimulating and whatnot. No more so than when we visited the formerly secret collection at the Gabinetto Segreto in the Museo Archeologico Nazionale di Napoli. And that would have only been visible to the wealthy and the super connected historically. But now it's like an open tourist component, which people you know are titillated by. And that's very fun. But it's a highly erotic display of objects from Pompeii and Herculaneum. And the rest of the museum, any museum we see has, you know, very austere, like, you know, Roman emperors, uh, women in robes. Um, everybody's tightly wound up and then you go into this room and it's like in Wizard of Oz, somebody turned on the color suddenly and the world is just vibrant and so much more dynamic than you thought. Everybody comes to, to, to learning about this side of the, the ancient world from a different perspective, but there's so many misconceptions about the ancient world and why that this was so surprising to me is because it's it wasn't talked about very much. So why don't we start off with like the super easy task of trying to get a sense about sex in the ancient world? Like that's that's easy, right? Oh, definitely. <laughs> it's funny you mentioned the Naples Museum because I'd been I was aware it existed that secret room or cabinet, and for years I've been dying to see it. <laughs> and that sounds weird, but it was because I was already on track, let's say, to the topic that I ended up doing for my PhD, and I had been exposed to. Greek erotica and Roman erotica previously, uh, thanks in part to the Boston uh, Museum of Fine Arts. Not many pieces, but enough where my interest was piqued. <laughs> and so when I got to, for the first time, the Naples Archaeological Museum, and I mean, I was just gunning it for that room. I was ignoring a lot of really important <laughs> pieces. You're like, what was, Alexander mosaic? <laughs> I know. I, well, that's funny because the Alexander mosaic is very close to the entrance. Yeah. I was like, there's that thing and just kept going. <laughs> but I mean, when I walked in, it was funny because you're listening to little conversations and, you know, people are laughing and stuff. And you, myself, as someone who studies this, I can't help but be like, oh my. <laughs> but I was looking at it with a different perspective. I was looking at it from a more academic approach I'll say and you know it's hard to remain objective but you kind of have to keep that in mind looking at the images themselves for what they tell us about you know Roman culture Roman society women you know, sexuality just in general and certain things that would have appealed and the viewership and everything so that was for me a dream come true and it sounds weird <laughs> to say I was like dying to get to Naples to see the secret room but I was <laughs> <laughs> but I think Many people unfamiliar with the topic, but generally aware of it because of rooms like the Cabinet of Secrets or Secret Cabinet, have this image in their heads that sex in the ancient world 
was like one wild rampant orgy full of crazy ancient sex toys and and what some today might call taboo although we don't take we don't really like that word with ancient sex studies um, or even just simply very uninhibited sexual behaviors Mm -hmm. and I think television shows and movies play a big role in that I'll never forget watching the stars series Spartacus which I think Mm -hmm. you also watched and my dad watched my dad watched as well but we watched it separately for very important reasons (laughs) and that was because of the variety of sexual encounters and just the colorfully erotic Um, depictions they did including homosexual ones which I for one found quite refreshing and more honest to the period but a product of that is modern audiences assuming that ancient sex was so liberated and in Mm. some ways it was compared to the modern world it's hard to really define sex in the ancient world because it's a sexual world in a culture so far removed from today it had prostitution that wasn't stigmatized you had places where men in their 30s and 40s, possibly even older, were marrying brides who some had just barely hit puberty. And sometimes they were related. And there was really no specific concept of rape. And there were numerous terms to cover just a spectrum of love and desire. And you also had a deity of sex and love, which we just don't have today. And a goddess whose domain covered such a wide range of sexual activities, as well as areas of life that were connected to sex, like marriage and fertility. So it's hard to neatly define it. And I think with that all being said, a lot of people think because it's so far removed, there can't be any similarities to today. But go to any porn site and the variety of sexual interests, desires, fetishes. Frankly, I think some ancient audiences would find shocking. But there are notions that were present in the ancient world that are still present today, like the objectification of women, the hyper-masculinization of men, the weaponization of gender, and sexual war crimes. So there's a lot to be said to looking at the past and realizing it's quite different and then kind of reflecting and seeing, you know what, some things really haven't actually changed. That's a series of really interesting points that you're making. And I think it's probably as a thought experiment nearly impossible like to step into a scene of the ancient world and imagine it without 2000 years of judeo-christianity it did a lot to constrain sexuality it did a lot to control it and you're right actually i think probably one of the most important factors in in all of this is there used to be a goddess who was sort of like your you know Dear Abby or or like Agony Ann and then also you know your gynecologist and your best friend and whatever like she was like the ultimate wing woman and that's gone and that's gone for such a long time and then all of those conversations around all of the realms that that somebody like Aphrodite or lesser level deities who had touchstones in like Hygieia, I'm thinking, or um, just t- like, yeah, Hera, like touchstones into like um, that realm of a woman's life, gone, absolutely gone. No representation whatsoever, other than obviously like the Virgin Mary, mom, virginity. But that's a really niche narrative that mm-hmm. literally no other woman could experience. So I don't know how accessible that was. <laughs> <laughs> Exactly. Absolutely. And like, I think there are two, you mentioned, you know, how do we approach sex in the ancient world? And there are different, there are several ways to approach sex in the ancient world. And the term sex itself, we really should acknowledge it's quite loaded. If we're using it as an umbrella term, that is a very large umbrella. And so much can fall under 
this topic in general and it's not limited to gender identity sexuality sexual identity there's a lot and you can approach it through several avenues including gender theory feminist theory psychology social history art and archaeology philology and frankly I think it's almost impossible to approach this topic and not combine yeah. those approaches. It's, there's no way to limit yourself that way. Um, but I think one of the most important things people today should bear in mind when looking at sex in the ancient world is that although it was fluid and in many ways comparable to modern discussions of gender and sexuality, we have to be very careful not to project modern notions mm -hmm. of gender and sexuality onto the ancient audience, especially today when there's a significant movement towards reckoning our definitions of genders and sexualities. Yeah. There are some things like the term homosexual, which is used today to identify, and I'm, I want to emphasize identify, a type of person, this being a man who's sexually attracted to men or a woman to women that weren't defined quite so starkly in the ancient world. Mm -hmm. the, Greeks, the Greeks and Romans didn't actually have a term for specifically identifying a type of person based on sexual preference. So let's say in this case, men who preferred sex with other men. There were terms that were considered descriptive of people desirous of being penetrated, but they weren't indicative of an identity. Mm -hmm. It was a sexual behavior desired by specific persons. So anytime we use modern terminology, we have to be very careful about how we're applying it to the ancient world. Is it an identifier? Is it a descriptor? Is there any ancient precedent for using that terminology to begin with? So it's, it's a tricky line to cross. As with sex, as with other topics of study in the ancient world, it's fascinating to see what some behaviors, some identities, some practices, some touchstones in the past that, that we can kind of look at and we find familiarity. It has to be really respected for its own historical context and cultural context at the time. And I think sometimes it's it's entirely understandable for groups who feel, who have been historically underrepresented to go looking for those stories in the past. And it's entirely reasonable. And the language we use to talk about it, it's, yeah, it's important to be mindful that what is true for us now was not untrue then, but it wasn't understood in the same way. Um, yeah, but, absolutely. Because of course, like sex in antiquity is a well-trodden topic. And I think just like when one studies Alexander the Great, as Peter Green once said, um, you learn a lot more about the author than you do about the subject in the, the way that they approach Alexander the Great as with sex. So the mores of the time, the norms, views of the, the like everything gets channeled into the work they're creating. And a lot of those, you know, earlier accounts of Greek sexuality and Roman sexuality are fanciful, it seems. But no, I agree. I think in more recent scholarship, especially with looking at sex in the ancient world, it's gratifying to see that more and more scholars are taking a really hard look at some of the, let's say, seedier sides of ancient sexuality, like violence and sexuality yeah. and reconsidering rape and things along those lines. And they're not trying to, I, don't, I wouldn't say anyone's tried to pretty it up at any point, but I do think there's definitely been that Western Christian veneer over a lot of the studies. And that yeah. is partly a product of the time the scholarship was being conducted in. But yeah, definitely more recently, there's a much more open-ended perspective in looking at sex in the ancient world.
Yeah, I've definitely noticed less euphemistic terms for things. <laughs> and I appreciate that because, you know, the, with uh, what was it, Margaret Atwood's book, um, Penelope Ad, where she writes the book from the perspective of Penelope in the Odyssey and then has that chilling scene where the maids were all Penelope's maids who were effectively forced to be sexually available to intrusive young men in her house as they sort of laid waste to her, her wealth and her stocks of food and things while Odysseus was away. And then as he returns, there's the reckoning and they're all killed. Like, I mean, that was just to me a revelation, like, yeah, yeah. I think if you change the language around a little bit and (laughs) look at it from another perspective, this becomes a much darker, much more harrowing um, account in the story. And, and yeah, so I think the, the way we're kind of talking about to do with particularly gender, but as well sex and um, sexuality, I think it, it makes it almost like a new subject again. Oh, absolutely. I think part of that as well is in the 1960s and 70s, there was a wave of feminist scholarship that came into play and it was heavily focused in one degree on classics and finding women in the ancient world and finding their voices because it had been so heavily favored and um, towards the elite white male, basically, or citizen Greek, I should say, they weren't all white. <laughs> but yeah, so this wave of feminist scholarship came to the fore and it really changed our dialogue of gender and sexuality in the ancient worlds. And where we are today is in large part because of this there were several waves of them as women scholars kept coming forward and reevaluating even previous women's scholarship but it really changed our dialogue of sex in the ancient world and women's place within it and either the lack of autonomy or where they managed to find autonomy so a lot of my own research uses or heavily uses this type of scholarship because previously it was so one way in terms yeah. of looking at the male experience and a very limited male audience as well. Yeah, absolutely. That kind of brings me to my next sort of question. Like, since there were no penthouse, there was no Playboy back then. Like, how do we know what they themselves thought? Like, wh- like what are the kinds of sources that you would look to to try and to get a sense of that? They certainly wrote about it quite a lot. <laughs> Directly or indirectly, um, legal texts, speeches, historical texts, philosophical texts, plays, poetry, you name it. It depends on what type of sexual experience you're looking for. Um, Herodotus, Thucydides, Xenophon, Homer, Hesiod, Plato, Sappho, Aristophanes, the list goes on and on. Yeah. All, all of them, depending especially on the topic, there are kernels of information that we can examine quite closely to determine aspects of sexuality in the ancient world, whether that's sexual captivity, love even as well, homosexuality between not just men, but women as well. Again, the weaponization of gender and not even just uh, against women, but against men as well. And Aristophanes' Lysistrata is a good example when the women, you know, withhold sex from their husbands to basically get them to realize why are we fighting? There shouldn't be a war right now and you're not going to get any until you stop. So there's a lot in the literary body that either directly addresses sex and sexuality or indirectly. And indirectly, a good example would be any sort of legal text or speech that is addressing a rape or something related to marriage. And usually there are descriptions of men or women or husbands and wives, I'll say, 
either fighting or their families are fighting. And there are reasons within those texts that have to do with wife being disloyal, in our opinion, to her husband and what kind of measures there were to deal with that. So there's a lot to be said for the literary uh, body of evidence, but we have a lot of evidence in media, artistic media, and it being careful that you have to define erotic before you start, you know, really examining the art for eroticism. And that's vase paintings. I, my PhD looked at sculpture and vase paintings primarily, although I did some minor arts as well. But mosaics, wall paintings, frescoes, sculpture, as I said, personal items such as mirrors. So there are plenty of different ways of approaching it, either artistically or through literature and history, and a combination of both is better. I mean, the ancient world is ripe with evidence of it. It's just a matter of knowing what you want to look for and then finding the appropriate sources. Particularly on vases, I find like if you're titillated by a nude, like you're not going to make it through the British Museum. Like you're just not, you might as well just, just stay in the cafe. Just don't do it. The kinds of narratives you can get on a vase is a little, it's like a comic strip or something. So that's quite helpful to get story or to get joke and that kind of thing. So if you had a sort of a sexy narrative on the outside of a Kylix and which is a deep drinking vessel for wine and in symposia and things, and then you look inside and it totally flips the narrative, has it a different outcome. There's a joke based in sex. Similarly, I think just from like a, a non-academic perspective, like let's say you're a tourist in Athens and you're walking through the placa in a normal non-COVID tourist season, um, you might forgive modern visitors for thinking that the ancient world was only populated by copious amounts of homoerotic art based on the souvenirs you see. You know, while there are some seriously rated R kind of images on pottery, cheeky satyrs and erect phalluses and good things like that, is it really commonplace, you know, or are we just like really keen to represent it because it might sell more or like who was looking at this and how normal was it? Well, I mean, you're certainly right. Sex sells. Um, the <laughs> modern placa is certainly using that. So there are definitely R-rated images, as you said. But it's important to note, as you've mentioned, that these make up an extremely limited body of evidence. I think people see vase paintings with explicit sexual images online, especially if you Google it, plenty come up mm -hmm. and assume that there must have been loads of them everywhere in every Greek or Roman household, which is another reason I think that people have the idea of the ancient world being this sexual free-for-all. But this just, this just doesn't appear to have been the case. I mean, I examine Greek vase paintings, as you know, so I'll, I'll limit myself to reflecting on those. But two key factors to consider are the export market and local demand. So mm -hmm. a number, if not most, of the very explicit vase paintings are found outside of Greece in what was the Etruscan region of Italy, so modern central Italy. Interesting. And although... And although we do have explicit sexual vase paintings from places like Athens, again, the quantity of this subset of depictions within the whole corpus of surviving painted pots is very minimal, especially if you're referring to paintings of explicit sexual congress. And I don't mean to downplay the evidence because that would go against my own PhD. But... <laughs> <laughs> these images are still quite informative and there's a wide range of sexual activities you can find depicted 
certainly every possibility that there were more painted pots with explicit sexual depictions than what we have remaining today as evidence. But even still, generally speaking, the picture that emerges is that explicitly erotic depictions were quantifiably much less common than other types of depictions. And that could be for any number of reasons from contemporary consumer preferences to appropriate viewing contexts, to historical events, etc. But then you also have to determine by which criteria is an image erotic or not, being careful again of modern terminology and criteria. But and that also affects your pool of evidence. And I could say more about, you know, Athenian produced vases being found outside of Athens and the implications thereof, as well as local consumption, but I'll refrain due to limits of time. <laughs> Yeah, no, that's a very good point. Actually, I didn't, I did not realize that the bulk of them were found in Italy. That's interesting. So they would obviously have been found as grave goods in most contexts, I would assume. Yeah, actually, a lot of, um, a good example, not erotic, are the Athenian prize amphora, which are found in Etruscan funeral contexts. And usually the rationale is you know, something that would have been a prize amphora in Athens actually suited very well the Etruscan funerary practices or the images they wanted to depict in a funeral context. So although it sounds strange to have this almost trophy uh, object that was in Athens in a tomb, let's say, in the Etruscan region, it actually makes sense because the images itself could definitely translate into a different audience and I, I think the same thing can be definitely said for sexual imagery as well yeah. but I think you have to bear in mind too that it's funny to call them r-rated because of course to us they they definitely look r-rated or even just erotic but these images appeared on not just vases mm-hmm. um, but also smaller arts like gems and jewelry terracottas personal items like mirrors lamps. more common household <laughs> lamps and more common household objects so the item or the depiction may not have been inherently erotic or have had that intended meeting to an ancient spectator but to a modern viewer it would be strikingly erotic and a good example is the roman tintinabulum <laughs> yes. which was a wind chime, often comprised of a bronze ithophallic, ithophallic meaning erect, figure, or a fascinum, which is the divine phallus thought to ward off the evil eye and bring good fortune. To a modern viewer, especially in Pompeii, it's hilarious because it basically looks like a big penis with little penises hanging off of it. And you think surely this has some sort of erotic sexual connotation. And maybe the Romans got their own chuckle out of it, but it just didn't have an R-rated meaning at the time. No. And actually, it's interesting you, you should bring that up because that is... I mean, a favorite image to draw, frankly, for me, Um, because it's and I think you're really downplaying how truly funny it is. I think my favorite one is a large phallus with the legs of a panther, some kind of wildcat, and it has its own phallus. Its tail is a phallus and uh, there might be more phalluses involved as well. Like, it's amazing. (laughs) And I wish we had these on our houses now, frankly, because they are truly spectacular. And these would have been, as you say, like outside of a, a doorway and for good luck purposes, as well as decorative. Sure. <laughs> sure. <laughs> but yeah, the finds from Pompeii were decontextualized when they took them out and put them in a museum. It's actually really hard to understand where private and public and nudity and naked really work in that kind of dialogue. If we today put 
an entirely nude set of genitals on our front door, there probably would be police involved. It's, exactly. It they didn't have that, so <laughs> you know, and and I, I I love all the different types of architectural elements that phalluses get built into because it is such a phallocentric culture that you know a penis is fertility a penis is good luck a penis is wards off the evil eye a penis like it they just do so many things they are the swiss army knife of the ancient world i guess does that make the vagina the like scabbard (laughs) (laughs) um yeah you're absolutely right but i think to answer your question because i don't think i really have yet uh for those (laughs) around For those erotic vase paintings that were seen, and I'm referring again to mostly Greek vase paintings, just to stay within my lane, so to speak, they were mostly depicted on wares commonly used in the ancient Greek symposia. So certain types of cups and jugs and mixing craters and symposia were the elite male social gatherings where there was drinking, music, dancing, recitals, philosophical discussions, general revelry. But it would have been primarily male symposium attendants seeing these depictions, as well as the symposium servants, which would have included female entertainers. Although again, whether or not they liked the depiction was irrelevant. It was for the entertainment and the delight of the elite male citizen attendants. Interesting. So Somebody would then have to wash that. That would have to get then stored somewhere. Do you store it with the sexy part facing out on your cabinet or do you store it sexy part facing down? Like, I mean, there's these next step elements that are kind of interesting to to think through and just like, did the wife see it? Did she care? Did she buy it for his birthday present? Like, we don't know. (laughs) It's funny you mentioned that though, because they're fantastic examples from Pompeii of Roman wall paintings in some villas in Pompeii, uh, usually mythologically based. And there's a hierarchy of where they appear in the villa itself, but it seems to be part of this gender and political and social hierarchy of the the owner of the house. Mm. So that when you enter into the house, you know, you're, you're going on almost a wall painting journey reiterating (laughs) the status of the owner and the fact that a lot of them were violently inclined mythological sex scenes says quite a bit about Mm. the use of the roman phallus which as you mentioned was this you know really prideful symbol of rome really um, of male dominance and superiority so you're as i said you're going through the house and you're seeing these images and you're just constantly seeing violent sex and it's totally normal and it's supposed to be telling you that this person is of a certain social standing and has quite a lot of power he is the phallus of the house and I think it's just fascinating that these are you know often rape scenes mythological rape scenes that are being used and someone could just walk in and be like oh rape and keep going (laughs) it's sort of like beauty and the beast no ace ventura pet detective when he goes in he's like ah what a lovely room of death (laughs) it's just full of dead animals like it's that kind of i see that you've chosen to decorate your house with these things and my second question is why (laughs) i like how not close you were with beauty and the beast and ace ventura (laughs) i was thinking of the beast castle and like the scary things i was like wait 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 that what is in that east wing But yeah, to the, Nebula. Oh, just like rife the wall. It's wall to wall to Nebula. <laughs> what I was going to say is the scenes themselves are of mythical scenes and they are effectively rape scenes. They're not actually 
what you would imagine that would look like. They are, you know, a woman having like her garment disrobed at the corner by like, you know, if she's a goddess and then the other character is another mythical being, or it's a, a Cassandra and Ajax. And you know, as the viewer, who these are and what's going to happen. Um, but the actual scene itself is, I would say, elegantly executed to allude to the conquest of this female character in a way that is tasteful and artistic, much like, you know, um, 18th century and 19th century paintings, which did the enormous, like heroic, giant paintings of the rape of the Sabines. And they've elevated it to that in the medium they've used and the size they've used and the style they put it in. And I get that vibe very similar from the frescoes in, in the Pompeian houses. Absolutely, yeah, you're absolutely right. The the fres the paintings themselves, as you said, um, the images weren't explicitly the moment of rape, let's say, but they were very suggestive in, in the way that you would see this image and know exactly what was going to be happening to that woman, just based on the myth as well. Yeah. In Pompeii, a common mythological scene was Ariadne yeah. when she was abandoned by Theseus and you had Bacchus coming in and finding her and like little cupids around and then Cassandra was also very common too and again as you said these weren't these weren't the moments of rape these were the moments leading up to it but they were very suggestive in the way that the the female her positioning in the painting itself the way she's dressed or undressed or being undressed by male characters it's all very indicative of a rape narrative that mm -hmm. the audience coming into this house would have been very aware of. Yeah. And it was playing into the idea that the woman was on one hand objectified and weaker and at the mercy really of that divine phallus, all working into a narrative of power that the, the owner, the dominus of the house would have been trying to project. Mm -hmm. And it definitely would have been something that you, you couldn't mistake if you were in that house and even remotely aware of the mythology. Yeah, yeah and it's, it's interesting as well because I think w when we talk about viewership of these things, like, well, not everybody's going to be going into the elite houses. So it, it's his clients, it's the enslaved he owns, it is his servants, it is his uh, children, uh, extended family, because obviously sometimes the family was like eight layers deep of step siblings and third marriages and God only knows. So yeah, it could actually be like quite a complex assemblage of people seeing these things, but it's not public in the same way that would be on a wall in, in like the forum if it was graffiti or something like that. So obviously like it's very highly curated viewership. A really good counterpoint to that, I think, is again from Pompeii, the suburban bath complex. There was multiple bath complexes in Pompeii. Um, this one was famous for what was in the changing rooms and it had this series of cubbies, had little frescoes, in each of these cubbies and each one depicted a different sex act and very graphically depicted different sex acts. One of which being the famous, the, I think the most famous one from this is the image of a man performing cunnilingus on a woman who is like sort of sitting triumphantly and staring you dead eyes. There's other instances where there's a threesome, a foursome, a ver it's sort of like a grab bag of all different types of interests and tastes, but it is basically in a gym locker for everybody to use <laughs> so um you would never forget where you put your things 
because you're like, ah, yeah, I put my stuff at the cunnilingus one or it's just so out of our norm. So there's that element. But then we are, I think, especially when thinking about Pompeii, we're so familiar with the brothel scenes and that I think interpreted to be potentially um, sort of a menu of options that you can select from or it's just decorative. Visiting the brothel would have been a very specific audience, the sex workers and the clients and the owner, potentially. The bath complex is everybody. So, you know, it, it really, it, it asks very different questions of the viewer and it's not elevated types of characters engaging in these acts. Nobody is arguably a goddess in them. It, it does seem to just be normal people. It's like, you know, for the public images of themselves and, and things they may have experienced, things they may want to experience, where they go and have a shower, you know, maybe get a massage, maybe get scraped down with a strigil. Like, you know, it could have been a whole day. And, and of course, sex was available for purchase in baths as well. So who knows? <laughs> no, absolutely. It's funny you bring up, you know, people remembering where they put their you know, whatever they brought with them to the baths based on the cubby, because one of the theories, I think by the original archaeologist, was that these frescoes were there as reminders of where they'd also, I mean, they left where they left their clothes for one thing, but I think it'd be funny if it, they were, it was a reminder that they left their clothes at the brothel. But it was also, <laughs> you know, it could have been advertising. It could have been just really decoration of joyful scenes, as um, one person put it which I find funny, just casually taking a bath and like, suddenly I feel dirty again. <laughs> I can't, <laughs> can't bathe until the next day. <laughs> well, yeah, like, yeah. Was, it, was it cross advertising? Was it like, right? you know, did the, we don't know, like did a brothel sponsor the paintings of this? And it was there one nearby? It's fun to speculate. Yeah, yeah absolutely. And I think it's funny today because especially with the dialogue we have about prostitution today and making sex work illegal versus legal and the ancient i mean just these paintings alone the fact that they're in a public bathhouse it's of course sex work is a profession it's it's filling a need just like sex work today is yeah so just the and it's very it's more visible then too yes absolutely and there's the stigma against it is kind of removed because there really wasn't this perception that prostitution was necessarily a bad thing. I'm not saying prostitutes had any sort of, you know, privileges or anything like that. It wasn't what you'd want to be if you were a woman in the ancient world. Wasn't demonized in the way that it is today. And I think yeah. these bath frescoes are testament to that, which is frankly refreshing. <laughs> no pun intended. I mean, to be fair, I absolutely love the idea. <laughs> yeah <laughs> yeah <laughs> why Absolutely. not given all of these amazing avenues and areas what do you find the most interesting aspect of studying this field oh I think you know the answer to that Madeir. <laughs> it's definitely Aphrodite yeah and just everything Aphrodite related I was drawn to her almost from the beginning of my interest in the ancient world which goes way back I'm not going to say one because that will reveal my age but there's that famous <laughs> line from <laughs> Homer's Iliad, where Zeus rebukes Aphrodite uh, for involving herself in a battle of the Trojan War. And I'll never forget it. I can memorize it because I love the Lattimore translation. But it's, no, my child, not for you or the works of warfare. Rather concern yourself only with the lovely secrets of marriage, while all this shall be left to Athena and sudden Ares. 
think that's book five. And I remember reading that and being enraged, <laughs> just <laughs> so indignant on behalf of Aphrodite. Like, how dare Zeus rebuke her so dismissively and patronizingly? I was like, oh, who are you to talk, Zeus? But there's so much more to her than this rebuke suggests. And I'll, I'll admit, over time, my interpretation of the rebuke has changed quite drastically, and I'm very much less aggressive towards Zeus now. But that quote led me down a rabbit hole of wanting to know more about Aphrodite. And then a trip to Athens, the archaeological museum, my first time there, I saw the Aphrodite of Epidurus uh, sculpture, which features Aphrodite wearing armor. And I'd never seen a depiction of Aphrodite in armor before. And I was like, what is she doing wearing these yeah. accoutrements? And I was just totally thrown off by it. And I was like, I have to know everything. <laughs> and so I, I must. Totally normal <laughs> so, reaction. <laughs> I took so many pictures. My friend, two of my lovely friends who aren't um, into ancient history like I am, they, God bless them, they really indulged me that trip. But I stayed way too long with that sculpture. But there's just so much about Aphrodite that I think goes unnoticed or unrecognized. And I was so interested in who she was, how she was characterized and why, how she was worshipped, because clearly there was more to her than just a love and sex goddess. Yeah. And I was also drawn to this fiercely feminine and sexual figure who was also incredibly powerful. She was, if you go by Hesiod, she predates the Olympians. She's extremely powerful and no one with few exceptions was immune to her power. So I love this combination of an unapologetically sexual woman, basically sticking it to the patriarchy, as we yeah. say today, at every opportunity. And I think a lot of women today, especially those in positions of power or seeking positions of power, struggle to be taken seriously because they're women or they think that they have to sacrifice part of their femininity mm -hmm. to be respected or to become like as Athena. powerful as men. Yes. And I think Aphrodite, albeit a goddess, She's a female figure who really anyone, not just women, can look to and think, I can be myself and own every aspect of my sexuality and still be a force to reckon with. And I just love that. I think she's just fabulous. I'm, she's my muse. <laughs> she's your muse, Bobby. <laughs> <laughs> well, actually, that's an interesting point you bring up because multiple times in this chat, we've said women could look to Aphrodite, women were interested. And, but of course, men were too. Like, oh, I mean, famously, the Julio-Claudians really associated themselves with <laughs> Aphrodite or mm -hmm. as Venus. But even in the sanctuaries of Aphrodite, which, you know, this is going to be a talk for another time, I can just tell right now, but there were male worshipers, there were, she spoke to everybody at different levels. And, and it makes sense, because her remit of powers covered so many things. So yeah, no, that, you know, I think you've just opened the door on future deep dive into the cult of Aphrodite, because frankly, I don't know that that has happened on a podcast. So. How much time have you got? I know, right? Like, I'm just saying, like, we could just dedicate a whole episode to this. And we should. Um, I'm here for it. I think one of the things that we haven't really touched on yet is, can you sort of walk us through an example of some sort of practice or tradition that you found really interesting in your studies? Sure can. So the Spartan marriage ritual which I do believe you're familiar with, I am. is still one of my favorite things to tell people about because for one, it's just fascinating. And for another, the reactions are priceless. <laughs> but <laughs> the Spartan marriage ritual gives us a really fascinating glimpse into the sexual experiences of a specific 
place in the ancient world, Sparta, obviously. So it's deeply embedded in the local social and cultural environment and customs. So I don't want to imply that it was bonkers, even in its heyday. And there's a lot of context that would help to make the ritual itself more understandable from a modern perspective. We don't have time for a Sparta lecture, <laughs> but I highly recommend if anyone's interested, they do a bit more reading on it because Sparta is one of my favorite places to talk about. Everyone always gravitates towards Athens. I'm like, bring me to Sparta because that's definitely where I prefer to be if I was a woman. Yeah, there are. I do think there are two important contextual things to note before you get into the rituals, though. Otherwise, it will be even more bonkers than it could have been. So the first is the Agoji, which I know you're familiar with, but anyone who has seen Gerard Butler's 300 movie imagines the Spartans to have been these physically ripped ultimate warrior heroes. And some of that is rooted in truth, but I think- Don't you dare take this away from me. (laughs) I'm not going to. I just like (laughs) to remind people that those washboard abs that you could just grate cheese on were certainly a delight for modern viewing Mm -hmm. audiences, but they also may have been greatly appreciated by the Spartan warriors themselves, if you catch my drift. I bet. And the reason for this is the Spartan agogi, which is the term for the educational and martial training program Spartan boys were enrolled in from a very young age, and it consisted of three stages, class by age range. And the boys are separated from the girls. The girls have their own agogi, which I'll go back to later. So agogi is school, is what you, yeah. Basically, yeah. Yeah. So the training centered on building unwavering loyalty to your Spartan brothers, as well as on becoming the most elite warriors in service to Sparta. Sparta really, you know, prided itself on having the best warriors in ancient Greece. And they had training in fighting and hunting, dancing, singing, social communication, everything. It was very intense, very strict, very disciplinary program. And hunting their enslaved people. We're not going to get into that. I don't have time, Zavia. <laughs> but at the age of seven, a citizen Spartan boy was first enrolled in the Agoji under the authority of the Paidonimos, which is basically like boy herder, I think is how we translate it, who supervised his education. He probably stayed at home during this time and then left to relocate to the male barracks around age 12. So the first stage was the Pides. He's about seven to 17. Second was the Pideskoi when he's 17 to 19. And then finally the Hebontes, which are Spartan males from 20 to 29. You didn't become a full Spartan citizen until you were 30. So this is this whole period. Yeah, it's a lot. So when a boy left home at 12, he actually came under the guidance of an older male lover known as an Erastes in the ancient world usually a member of the Habantes group, so somewhere in his late 20s. And this was a pederastic relationship, and it was important, an important element in his social development, one supported even by his family and friends. And Plutarch, you know, take it with a grain of salt, described Spartan pederasty as older males forming a long-lasting mentor-like relationship, which was also erotic in nature. So that's something to bear in mind when we're talking about the Spartan marriage ritual. You have this intense male bonding and separation from females lasted for years. There's this pederastic mentoring relationship, which Spartan males formed as part of their training program to become full-fledged Spartan citizens at age 30. And that's very important to remember. And the second thing I've already talked about it briefly, is the female version of the agoji. Spartan women up to the point of marriage participated in the female version of the agoji, and this was dance, gymnastics, wrestling, horseback riding, running, etc. 
and we also have suggestions of homoeroticism among Spartan women, mm-hmm. which makes sense when you think about it, because they too were surrounded by women constantly and gaining their own social education from exclusively women, essentially. So you might think this is a rather unique program for ancient Greek women, and it was, especially if you consider the lack of equality between men and women in the ancient world. But Sparta's community revolved around the idea of eugenics, that only strong men and strong women could produce strong children. And strong children were required for the Spartan army. (laughs) So one of the reasons, like, I would have preferred to have been in Sparta is, you know, this wonderful education that other girls in other Greek cities didn't get. But they also didn't marry as early as other ancient Greek women. Well, like Athens, a girl could be as young as 12 and getting married to her uncle, <laughs> a Spartan girl. <laughs> like horrible, a Spartan, horrible. A horrible, horrible. A Spartan girl could be in her late, was in her late teens generally, and her husband in his late 20s. Ages which the Spartans felt were more appropriate, physically speaking, for women to be carrying and birthing children. And there's that wonderful quote from Plutarch about Spartan women. And I th- I'm not sure if you're familiar with it, but stop me if you are. And it's when Queen Gorgo, the wife of Leonidas, so she's, she's asked by an Athenian woman, why are you Spartan women the only ones who can rule men? And Queen Gorgo responded, because we are the only women who give birth to the men. And I'm like, oh, oh damn. Snap, snap. <laughs> I know. So-, but it, so, I mean, we all know this now. That when you have children effectively giving birth to children, they die or they have tons of health problems or, you know, because the body is not done (laughs) and to then insist that they create life out of these little bodies. It's a terrible idea for so many reasons. And I'm not even talking morally, (laughs) just just (laughs) physically that Spartan women were giving birth in their 20s ish means, you know, they had finished an education and they had a sense of self. Um, They had a support network going into motherhood and those types of things. So comparably to a 12 year old who's taken from family mentored by her husband in a way, you know, he, he, it was his job to educate his wife in Athens, let's say she's 12. No, I completely agree. It's just my whole face was cringe fest the entire (laughs) time you were talking, but you're absolutely right. Um, And plus, you know, Spartan women had quite a few more rights than let's say an Athenian woman, uh, just especially when they got married. Yeah. But I can get to the ritual now, finally. So unlike Greek, other Greek cities, in Sparta, the bride wasn't conveyed to her groom's house by family and friends singing wedding hymns and whatnot. A Spartan bride was, quote unquote, captured by her husband in a staged kidnapping. And there was still a prior negotiation process, don't get me wrong, between the respective families. It's not like the bride was just sitting one day and suddenly she's, you know, taken somewhere <laughs> and is a wife. Yeah. But it was that's why it's a staged capture. But it had more to do with emphasizing personal merit over flaunting wealth with an elaborate and public ceremony yeah but anyways after the abduction the groom would leave the bride with a female attendant and this is where i struggle with my desire to be a spartan woman (laughs) but she'd be left with the female attendant who would cut off the bride's hair quite close to her head dress her in a man's cloak and sandals and lay her down on a pallet in the floor where she remained in darkness alone (laughs) while her groom ate dinner with his buddies and then only later did the groom slip back into the room loosen her girdle carry her to the bed and finally consummate the marriage and then after spending a short amount of time you know thanks honey and a little slap on the waist 
he would go back to his usual quarters with the men. And from that point on, the husbands were actually expected to meet their wives in secret every night. And this went on for years until the woman got pregnant. And according to Plutarch, again, who's one of our main sources for these rituals, and again, take it with a grain of salt, the secret intercourse was meant to increase desire between the couple, something along the lines of, you know, distance making the heart grow fonder, as well as building anticipation so that your seam is really strong. I don't know if I buy that, but all right. (laughs) uh, So the urge to procreate would be stronger, potentially produce stronger kids, because that's how it works. And as I said, the marriage was only made public when the wife became pregnant. And in Sparta, wife sharing was not uncommon in order to increase the chances of pregnancy. So brothers could share the same wife. Um, The husband, after giving approval to a man who wanted children and was having issues producing children with his wife, could borrow the man's wife. Um, so everything in Sparta was like must produce strong babies. <laughs> it was so crazy like that. Go ahead. So we've kind of just quickly jumped over the fact he's basically the girl becomes GI Jane and then is in darkness made some sort of love to by her her new husband. Now the rationale for this is interesting. Mm-hmm. And I think this is where it touches on that whole boy mentorship older male lover situation yes absolutely sarah pomeroy has written extensively on spartan women so she calls it transvestism which it essentially is and it could have been symbolic of the woman's inclusion in the citizen body it could have been an attempt to ward off the evil eye which we mentioned earlier or supernatural spirits who were jealous of the bride's fortune i'm kind of, i'm somewhat quoting her so i'll you know credit where it's due and the bride's costume, as she said, may have also helped to ease the husband's transition to procreative sex from the homosexual intercourse to which he was accustomed. That's a direct quote. And I think she's spot on with that. If you imagine it, this is however many years he would have been in his late 20s. So almost a 30 year old man has been accustomed to homosexual relations, suddenly being thrust, no pun intended, into a heterosexual relationship. Yeah. And that must have been daunting but again he wasn't the only one who is being thrust into an unfamiliar territory the woman herself was like well (laughs) this isn't what I bargained for either but you know it's it's funny to think about that but the fact that she's made basically to look like a boy to help him which I mean kudos to them it must it works clearly but there's something to be said for the woman's experience of that. And although, frankly, you know, she st- she had quite a bit of autonomy when, you know, while she was only seeing her husband in secret at night and was still yeah. with her family for a period. And I mean, it's weird, but it's I'm not going to say it sounds great because it doesn't. You have to steal away to see each other. That part I find fascinating and you shouldn't be caught trying to get to right. each other. It, it is meant to wean him off of his previous types of relationships. Now, and I recall that. If a man continued his relationships with other men after marriage, that was a problem. Yes. Yeah, you're right. Absolutely. Um, it was, God, I just, I, I'm picturing just this poor woman in a dark room. <laughs> in a, in a burlap this. sack, head <laughs> I shaved. Know, head shaved. <laughs> like speaking as someone where like whose hair is her main vanity, it's just like, oh, I'll just die spinster. <laughs> oh, man. She had quite a bit of autonomy from him at that point um she essentially raised the kids their own as well she was in charge of 
basically the household. She could own property. She could do a number of things that you just don't find in other Greek city states. It's just yeah. a matter of is the wedding ritual worth it? <laughs> and I think for well, a lot of them, it would have been. The Spartan wedding ritual sort of flies in the face, blows minds, because I think for a lot of people now, as we sort of touched on at the very beginning of this conversation, is how we have sex is a big part of our identities now. Even if you don't actively put it out there in a way like it's just not something you personally talk about, it's on job applications, it's on surveys, it's in the news, it's on t-shirts, it's on everything. So you can't help but think about it. Whereas to try and imagine going through your early adolescence into your 20s in sexual relationships, which have other purposes and like social cohesion purposes versus just what is it you are naturally attracted to you or something like that. You know, like it's just such a different perspective. And I don't think there's anything quite like it. <laughs> I mean, God, I hope not. <laughs> I hope that's one thing that does not make a comeback, please. It's been fascinating, Brianna. And, you know, I could talk about this all day with you because um, you have so many interesting things to say, but I, this brings us to sort of the last section, the the sort of so what? Why does this matter to the modern world? <laughs> well, thank you again for having me because I've had an absolute blast and I wish we could keep talking about it, but I know we have places to be during a lockdown. So <laughs> <laughs> I think one of the most, I, we touched upon it earlier, which is kind of taking that time to really self-reflect or just socially reflect on why we're interested in the ancient world's sexuality in the ancient world to begin with because it does reflect quite a lot on the modern world and how we interpret our own sexual identities and I think in looking at the ancient world there are a lot of sources for understanding even how we reached certain points in modernity in terms of gender relations sex relations etc I think one of my one of my chapters of my PhD looks at uh, sex and violence in the ancient world and in researching it, it was a very lighthearted topic. It was, <laughs> I came across quite a lot of parallels with modern practices and modern warfare. And it's, it's disheartening and fascinating in a weird way to see something that was in the ancient world and was weaponized and to see it still being used in almost the exact same way mm-hmm. in the modern world. And it's just, it's those kinds of parallels that I think are important for just continuing the study of the ancient world in general, because there's a lot we can learn about how we got to where we are today and why we are the way we are based on what happened, based on ancient precedents, basically. Some things that really should have changed at this point are mm-hmm. still rampant, like violence against women. As an example of this, like I guess one of the most famous stories that probably everybody listening to this will have come across at some point in their life is the Iliad. So this story, it's a pretty harrowing tale. And that narrative was how heroism was understood and defined. Heroism of the victors is part of it. And those victors did terrible things to the, to the captured women. Obviously, they killed the male soldiers and enslaved them, but they the offshoots of theater and poetry and songs and things about what happens to the women after, it still resonates with us today. And 
their treatment wasn't necessarily viewed as a bad thing in antiquity. So Mm -hmm. the way, especially like battle narratives and things like that from antiquity, and a lot of people look at them today with that sort of swelling of pride in the chest, like, ah, they overcame this thing. It's like, but the human cost is so great. That's still in the modern times. We still see women as targets of violence and war and, and it's heartbreaking. Yeah, absolutely. And to be, well, as you said, with the Iliad, it's interesting because most people reading or non-experts, I'll say, reading it, they assume victory is in Greek hands when Troy falls. And obviously that is the case. But what's fascinating is if if you really read it and pay attention to what the Greek warriors are saying, Troy hasn't officially fallen in their minds until the women are captured. Yeah. So. The, the walls could be burning and tumbling, but until you have those w- Trojan women, especially the elite, yeah. young, fertile women, captured and enslaved, you haven't officially won yet. So there's, def- again, it goes back to that weaponization of gender and the sexual violence against women. And it wasn't just women, um, but let, let's primarily focus on them for now, especially as later poets, such as especially Euripides and Hecuba and Trojan women, yeah. really hyper-focused on the, the experience of the women and what happened after the fact. Yeah. But it, it's, it's definitely interesting. And also, as you said, really heartbreaking to see that some things really haven't changed so i mean i i guess if if i was to say like for me as somebody watching you conduct your research and seeing as it's developed over the years and where it's going now i think it's really great that this is one of the angles your research is taking because number one it's not for the faint of heart (laughs) it is not easy to study you know sex and sexual violence and all of these things in any period, let alone ancient history or, or modern, like it's just, it is just not easy. Um, but it's so worthwhile and, and so worth doing and feels in some of those absences in the record of trying to look at a picture fulsomely and in, in full 3d, you only seen the only seen one side of a vase of, you know, Cassandra being taken from the statue of Athena and her sanctuary by Ajax deep cut Um, (laughs) is is only one part of it because on the flip side she then you know then she goes to Agamemnon's palace and then she's killed you know so there's a whole perspective that that needs to be filled in and it's really great that this is part of the focus of your research to do that yeah I'm definitely hopeful that future research allows me to I mean I'll do it regardless of who hires me (laughs) but I I would love to really deep dive you know, modern cases of the weaponization of gender, like the Yazidi women, and looking at ancient precedents for it, and, you know, really seeing what that says about the practices themselves, the precedents for them, how we move on in the future, if we can move on in the future, and just really, it's the women's voices I'm most interested in, but yeah, definitely, I'm I'm looking forward to it, and I'm really hopeful that it's a project I can pursue in, in further detail. But right now, after just completing the PhD, I'm taking a break. A hundred percent fair. Um, <laughs> Dr. I'm gonna... King out. <laughs> Dr. King out. Um, so um, it has been an absolute delight spending the, the hour with you. And I don't only finished my coffee, I finished two. So that's... <laughs> <laughs> I finished my tea. Excellent. Wow, you're a classic girl. Um, but yeah, this has been a delight, and I would absolutely love it if you would come back and we could talk more about. I mean, there's so many avenues to discuss, but as somebody who loves and studies ISIS, we got to have an ISIS oh, Aphrodite throwdown. I think at some point, absolutely, um, absolutely. And- 
if listeners listening to this podcast have any, you know, questions, anything that they would like to hear more about, and the next time we can get Dr. King on to talk about uh, <laughs> sex, sexuality, gender, gods in the ancient world, door is open. So please feel free to leave any comments on Instagram. And uh, this has been a delight. Thank you so much for joining us. Two friends. Thank you history. so much. Thank you. All right. Well, thank you for joining us as we explored these stories together. Please give Two Friends Talk History a review on Apple Podcasts, SoundCloud, or Spotify, or whatever platform you use. It's easy to do, and if you want to give a rating uh, under the episode details, it helps so much to gain visibility and get listed in other countries, so that would be amazing. Don't forget to hit subscribe or follow. You can also check out the Instagram for Two Friends Talk History, uh, especially for today's episode, which was very rich in art and art discussion, and those types of uh, examples will be posted. Or you can check out my website, www.archaeoartist.com, or hit up our Patreon. Thanks so much. Talk to you next time.